0: please turn to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. We're continuing in our study that we began last week on the ruthless reign of the unholy trinity. Now, several of you this past week reached out to me, and you let me know that you appreciated the fact that I acknowledged my need to slow down in my preaching. Several of you also let me know that even though I was not successful in my endeavor last week to slow my pace down, you at least appreciated that I was aware of the situation. (laughs) And and in counseling, that's where everything needs to begin, right? The person with a problem needs to be aware of their need and aware of the problem for any progress to be made. So let's try it again this Sunday, a little slower. Uh, we'll go a little bit slower through our text. Good thing that there's not anything that's potentially confusing or controversial in this passage at all. You guys got the joke. First hour did not get that joke. <laughs> Revelation 13 is our text for this morning. If you would, please stand and we will read this chapter of Scripture. Our main focus is verses 11 through 18. But for the sake of context, we'll begin in verse 1 and read the entire chapter. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast." And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name, his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Thank you. You may be seated. We come to a potentially confusing chapter of the book of Revelation, but I hope that from our study last week, you can at least be confident that the word of God is perspicuous, that it is clear in what it says. There are maybe things that as Paul, uh, as Peter writes about Paul's letters in 2 Peter chapter 3, that there are some things difficult to understand that As Paul writes to Timothy, saying that you need to study yourself, to be disciplined, to show yourself an approved workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Do your best to study the word of God. Uh, Just because things aren't clear right away doesn't mean that it's forever locked up in a box that we will never be able to understand. But what God has said, we are to steward well. We are to take it, and not just use it for simple uh, academic information, For entertaining people over theological discussions, but that we actually submit ourselves and obey the scripture. We come now to the second part of this chapter, and we are looking at the ruthless reign of the unholy Trinity. Zooming out just very briefly, we've gone over this several times before, in the book of Revelation, we are hearing from the Apostle John, writing around AD 95. He's the last living apostle. All the other apostles and most of that first generation of Christians had gone to their eternal reward and glory. This book represents the close of the biblical canon and the passing of the baton from the first generation of Christians to the next generation of Christians. John is given an apocalyptic vision. An apocalyptic vision. Apocalypse means an unveiling, a revealing, hence the term revelation. John is shown a vision of the glorified Christ in chapter 1. He's shown the present condition of the seven churches of Asia Minor, churches that were precious and dear to John because much of his ministry during the first century was in Ephesus and the surrounding region. He was shown the present condition of those seven churches. And then, beginning in chapter 4, going through the rest of the book, he has shown a preview of future events, a depiction of what will certainly happen. Beginning in the throne room of God, where the Lamb comes to the throne of the Almighty and takes the, the, the scroll, the, the seal... The sealed scroll that represents the authority over the entire cosmos, and one by one, the lamb breaks the seals, and seven judgments are poured out upon the earth, and the seal judgments give way to the trumpet judgments, and then again, there are seven trumpet judgments, which will ultimately give way to the bowl judgments. We haven't gotten to the bowl judgments yet, because in between the sealed judgments and the trumpet judgments, there was an interlude demonstrating God's ability to save, and now in between the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments is another larger interlude that demonstrates... God's sovereignty over all of creation, even when it seems like all hell has broken out on earth. And that's where we find ourselves. In this interlude that comes in between the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, we see the sovereignty of God on display, even when it seems like evil is running rampant. And beginning in chapter 12 and continuing on through chapter 13, we have a great sign. Chapter 12, verse 1, a great sign that depicts the scope of spiritual warfare that began all the way before the Garden of Eden, when Satan sought to exalt himself, Lucifer sought to exalt himself above the Most High, was cast down out of heaven, took a third of the angelic hosts with him in rebellion, and has been waging war on God and God's people ever since. When we looked at chapter 12, we saw the ministry or the perverted ministry of Satan, his endeavors to attack God, his endeavors to attack God's people, the people of Israel, and then later believers, And Satan then turns in chapter 13. Now this vision brings us to the time that Daniel chapter 9 refers to as Daniel's 70th week, what we commonly call the tribulation, a literal seven-year period that is yet to come. Chapter 12, the latter half of chapter 12 and all of chapter 13 focus on Satan's efforts coming to a fever pitch during the time of the tribulation and, and how he will operate. He'll operate through an individual we looked at last week called the Antichrist or the beast that comes from the sea. And then he will operate as through this individual that we're looking at this morning, beast rising out of the earth, the false prophets. Why study this? Because as we said last week, Satan's tactics don't change. They don't change in style. They will change in fervency. They will change in degree. It will be horrific living on earth during the time of the tribulation. But his tactics namely affliction and oppression and deception and perversion of the truth, to afflict and to deceive, to deceive and to afflict. These tactics do not change. He's operated this way in the past. This chapter shows us he will operate this way in the future. And friends, here's where it comes to you right now. He operates this way in the present. Remember what we said last week, what we study Sunday needs to affect us Monday. What we study on Sunday needs to affect us on Monday. As we just sang that the Lord is our shield and our sword against the cruel deceiver to take a stand against his hateful darts. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of the might. Put on the full armor, God, that you may be able to withstand against the evil one in the evil day. And when is the evil day? In Ephesians 6, people want to know, when's the evil day from Ephesians 6? Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, the evil day is every day. Every day between now and when Jesus comes back and institutes his reign here on earth, every day is the evil day. So we stand against Satan now. You have an enemy now. And studying his tactics in the future, his tactics through the Antichrist and through the false prophet, my prayer is that will equip you now to lead a victorious Christian life, resisting the evil one, Resist the devil and he will flee from you, as James reminds us. So, Revelation 13 is our text for this week and last week. Last week, we looked at the fact that the unholy trinity will attack God's people by means of ferocious persecution. We we said the overarching structure is two methods by which the unholy trinity will terrorize God's people in the future and in turn instructs us how to withstand him in the present. Last week, we looked through the actions of the Antichrist, the unholy trinity of Satan who attacks God the Father, the Antichrist who sets himself up as a perverted substitute for God the Son, and this morning, we'll look at the false prophet who sets himself up as a perverted substitute for God the Holy Spirit. They will attack God's people by means of ferocious persecution, ferocious persecution. The scheme is to unleash horrific persecution on the people of God through the actions of the beast. And last week, if you remember, we looked at 10 characteristics of the beast's activity that show us Satan's battle plan. One, the beast will be politically powerful. Two, the beast will be the summation of all human empires that have lifted themselves up against God. Three, the beast will be empowered by Satan. We know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, as 1 John 5 tells us. But in certain empires and in certain ways and in certain individuals, Satan takes an extra special hand to help accomplish his purposes. Fourth, the beast will be a false Christ, a substitute for Christ, having a, a type of false resurrection. Fifth, the beast will be a leader of satanic idolatry, it says in verse 4, and they worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Sixth, the beast will be permitted to reign for a determined amount of time, verse 5. Seventh, the beast will be a reviler of all that is holy. Eighth, the beast will be a persecutor of those who love God. Nine, the beast will be completely dominated over planet Earth. And ten, the beast will be worshipped by all the unbelievers of the world. That's all what we covered last week. And we ended last week with saying, how do we withstand? What is our response? What should a Christian do in the face of this type of oppression and affliction, which will be terribly intense in the future, but is even present now to a lesser degree today? What do you do? What do you do when Satan and his minions come to afflict you? You press on and you persevere to the very end. You press on and you persevere to the very end. That is the believer's response. How do you do that? You begin with the word of God. This book is life to the believer. This book is the battle plan. It's the instructions. It's the lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So verse nine says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Hear what? not just any random talk, not a TED talk, not a YouTube video, not a podcast. You listen to the word of God. You heed God's warnings beforehand. Then you rest in God's sovereignty over your life and over your death. You trust that if it's your time to go, then it's your time to go. If affliction, suffering, and martyrdom comes for you, then it comes for you as part of God's good plan, and God never makes a mistake. This is not fatalism, but trust and rest in the good sovereignty of God. Third, you cling to Christ no matter what. As we ended last week, this was a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Press on, persevere, hold on to Christ because if you are a true Christian, he has got an even stronger grip on you. You can press on and persevere because he has you. Now we look at this week, the tactics of the evil one through this individual called the false prophet, this second beast, this beast that rises out of the earth, beginning in verse 11. Last week, we looked at Oppression and affliction. Now we're looking at blasphemous deception. The unholy Trinity will attack God's people by means of blasphemous deception. That's point number two, verses 11 through 18. There was blasphemy and deception in the ministry of the Antichrist last week, and there will be affliction and oppression during the efforts of the false prophet, as we'll see this week. But the emphasis last week was on persecution. The emphasis this week is on deception. And again, Satan's tactics don't change persecution and deception he comes to people and he says has god really said he did that to eve in the garden he will do that to people in the time of the tribulation and he does it to people even now has god really said he seeks to deceive and to lead astray let's look at our text again verse 11 then i saw another beast rising out of the earth it had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon Our sub-point here is that the evil one's scheme is to deceive humanity by the activity of the false prophet. What's the end result? The end result is that they would give unswerving loyalty to that which is wicked. The evil one will operate this way in the future, and again, he operates this way in the present. Deceive humanity by the activity of the false prophet into giving unswerving loyalty to that which is wicked. Excuse me. First point we see here about the activity of the false prophet, the false prophet will attempt to use meekness to mask his evil heart. The false prophet will attempt to use meekness to mask his evil heart. Excuse me for a second. All right. Verse 1 says, And I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. This is a continuation of John's vision that began in chapter 12, verse 1. He saw the dragon, Satan. He saw the Antichrist. Uh, the, the substitute Messiah, the beast that came out of the sea. And now, now he sees this next beast, the false prophet, as Revelation 19, 20 calls him. Revelation nineteen twenty says this, and the beast was captured, and with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and who worshiped his image. Even though the term the false prophet does not appear in chapter 13, he is called this in Revelation 19, so I will commonly referred to him as such, the false prophet. The false prophet is described as having horns like a lamb, horns like a lamb. What is interesting about this description is that it is set side by side with this other descriptive phrase, he spoke like a dragon. Now, if you've studied the Bible for some time, you hear lamb, and you might think, is he setting himself up as a substitute sacrifice? Because often when we hear lamb, we think John 1:29, behold, lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It brings to us thoughts of the sacrificial system or an atoning sacrifice. I don't think that's what's in view here, especially with the contrast to it spoke like a dragon. You know, in Isaiah 53, it describes Jesus, the true Messiah, and how he was led to the cross like a lamb before his shearers is silent. Lambs are often pictures of humility, meekness, not a threat at all. And that's what this false prophet will appear to do. Just like the Antichrist will come onto the world scene, Revelation 6, verses 1 and 2, he comes onto the world scene under the pretense of peace. He, he, he's the first horseman of the apocalypse, the Antichrist is. He comes conquering with a bow but no arrows. Daniel 9 says he'll make a treaty in one of the most hotly contested places on the face of the planet, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. He'll make a treaty such that somehow, some way, Muslims, the Islamic religion, will give ground to... The Jews, so that they can reinstitute the temple system. He will be a master diplomat under a pretense of peace, but he'll be a deceiver. And the false prophet will come in an attitude of softness, meekness, and humility, horns like a lamb, and yet all the while he speaks like a dragon. William Shakespeare said through Hamlet that one may smile and smile and be a villain. The Motown group, The Temptations, saying, That smiling faces sometimes, they don't tell the truth. This is the modus operandi of all false teachers throughout the scriptures and even today. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament and in our present circumstances, false teachers always make efforts to appear to be something that they aren't. Jude describes these false teachers just like this false prophet from Rev 13 in Jude verse 12. He says, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. The Lord Jesus warned us about these false prophets in the Sermon on the Mount when he says this in Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20. He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. You know, one of the most common retorts we hear from unbelievers often, often, especially if you engage with anybody on social media, which just word of the wise is usually a losing endeavor, Um, but... What well, a lot of unbelievers respond with is Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that ye be not judged. Judge not lest ye be judged. Now, it's interesting that the same individual, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the same chapter who said judge not lest ye be judged, later in that same chapter says you will recognize people by their fruits. You need to understand what does it mean to judge not lest ye be judged. To judge not lest ye be judged does not mean you never make any moral assessment about anybody whatsoever. Because later in the same chapter, Jesus is literally commanding his followers to recognize false individuals by their fruits. He calls us to make moral assessments. What does it mean to judge not lest ye be judged? What the Lord Jesus is condemning there is the same thing he's been condemning throughout the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't act like the Pharisees. You see, when the Pharisees held people to an extra biblical standard... When they held people to additional rules and additional legalism, when they added to the scriptures, they were literally, what they were doing, James explains this in James chapter 4, they were literally removing God off the judge's seat and sitting themselves on that. They were usurping the judge of all the earth and trying to take his position. To judge not lest he be judged means to hold people to extra-biblical or non-biblical legalistic standards and to find people wanting because they don't meet your preferences. But to hold somebody to God's standards, to biblical standards, to recognize false prophets by their fruit is not sinful judging. It's biblical obedience to Christ. So now let's apply this to this false prophet. Verse 11. He had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. He comes in apparent meekness, and yet his words reveal his heart. The Lord Jesus told us that was true too, of not just false teachers, but everybody. Your words show your heart. Matthew 12, 34 through 35. You brood of vipers, this is the Lord speaking here. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. If you talk about baseball all the time, I know that you love baseball. If you talk about guns and hunting all the time, I know that you love guns and hunting. If you talk about cars all the time, I know that you love cars. If you talk about your kids all the time, I know that you love your kids. Your words reveal your heart. I used to say this to the high school students. If I were to take your phone and scroll through your text messages and scroll through your emails, I would know what's going on in your heart. And God doesn't need to use an app. Your words reveal what's going on in your heart. This false prophet speaks like a dragon. Throughout the context of Revelation, dragon terminology is terminology that pertains to Satan, the evil one. This false prophet comes in the guise of lamb-like meekness, but he is a satanic preacher at heart. He'll use meekness to mask his evil heart, but he will be recognized for who he truly is. Second, the false prophet will exert incredible political power. Verse 12a says this, It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. Authority here is defined by one source as the power of rule or government. Now, this is delegated political authority, just as we saw last week with the Antichrist. This is authority that has been given to the false prophet. He gets this authority from the Antichrist. Where did the Antichrist get the authority from? From Satan is what the text says, Revelation 13, verse 2. And to it, the Antichrist, the dragon, Satan, gave his power and his throne and great authority. But friends, remember, remember, and I hope this is comforting. There's been a lot of intense stuff so far in this sermon. I hope this is comforting. Where does all political authority ultimately come from? Even wicked political authority. All political authority, even political authority wielded by wicked, foolish, sinful, godless individuals ultimately comes from the hand of Almighty God. Daniel 2, verses 20 through 21, Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. In the New Testament, Jesus, at his trial, his sham trial, standing before Pilate, John 19, 9 through 11, Pilate entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So, Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, This is verse 11, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. As we said last week, the devil is God's devil. The Antichrist, the false prophet are tools in Satan's hand, but Satan is ultimately a tool in God's hand. God is never morally culpable for the evil committed by Satan and those loyal to Satan. But God is in sovereign authority over all of it. And it reminds us, reminds me of the beautiful words from one of my favorite hymns: This is my father's world. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. The false prophet will exert incredible political power, but it's delegated political power. He is permitted for a time and to only go so far as God allows. What does he do? That brings us to our third point. The false prophet will perversely mimic the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Second part of verse 12. He makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. You know, last week we briefly commented on how the Antichrist will set himself up as a false Christ, imitating the second member of the Trinity, God the Son. Well, here, this false prophet will mimic the third member of the Trinity, blasphemously so, He will imitate the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was in the upper room, he told his disciples about the impending coming of the Holy Spirit. And that that it would be the ministry of the Holy Spirit to testify to the disciples about the truth of Jesus Christ. John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. We know that that was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. But we also know from studying the Gospels that the ministry of the Holy Spirit had been going on throughout the entire ministry of Jesus Christ. From the moment of Jesus' baptism, when he came up from the water, and John says he saw the Holy Spirit descending upon Christ like a dove, the Spirit clothed Jesus in power to do the ministry of the Messiah. Every miracle that Jesus Christ did, he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this proved to anybody watching with a ears to hear and a humble heart that Jesus was the true messiah this was also why it was so wicked and evil that the pharisees and the sadducees and and the the false religious leaders of jesus's day in in the nation of israel when they committed the unpardonable sin and instead of attributing jesus's miracles to what they really were coming from the power of the holy spirit the holy spirit who was testifying to christ they said they came from satan well the spirit's ministry is to testify to the validity of christ and in the tribulation This false prophet will attempt to pervert and mimic the ministry of the Holy Spirit and he will point everybody to the Antichrist. Follow this man. Follow this wickedness. This will happen in the future in the tribulation, but it it happens now every day. Maybe not to the degree that we see here in this chapter, but Satan will do whatever he can to take people away from worshiping the one true God. He will use secular academia from the college classroom He will use the superstition of the witch doctor's hut in the jungle. He will use philosophical systems. He will use religious legalism. He will use even ridiculous things like UFO sightings or the theory of evolution. Whatever he can do to take away people's trust in Jesus Christ, to draw them from a simple faith in the God of the Bible and trusting in the scripture, he will do Next, we see that the false prophet will be endowed with demonic, supernatural abilities. Verse 13 says, the false prophet performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. The false prophet will have supernatural power to work great signs. And again, this is no surprise, for Satan has often empowered his minions to use signs and wonders. Balaam, we see in the book of Numbers, Balaam had a reputation for powerful prophecies and curses, such that he was hired by a pagan king as a sort of mercenary sorcerer. Saul consulted with a witch in 1 Samuel 28 who had a reputation for exercising some sort of spiritual power. This false prophet will be cut from the same cloth as Balaam and the witch of Endor in 1 Samuel 28. We even see this prototype in the pagan magicians that were in Pharaoh's court in Egypt when Moses and Aaron came before Pharaoh. Whatever Moses was able to do, these men provided counterfeit examples. Exodus 7 verses 8 through 13 But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. In the future, the wicked false prophet will act just like a counterfeit Elijah. He will call down fire from heaven, this verse says. Verse 13 of chapter 13 says, call down fire from heaven, and he'll have a purpose in doing so. It won't be just for entertainment, but he'll seek to lead people astray, which is our next point. The false prophet will lead the entire world in wicked idolatry of the Antichrist. Verse 14. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It's no wonder to read here the net result and intended purpose of all these signs and wonders. The false prophet is endeavoring to perform these acts so as to lead the world astray, to follow him in the worship of the Antichrist. Again, Satan wants souls. As Jesus told us in John 8, he is a murderer. A liar and a murderer. He wants to kill as many as he can. Satan knows that he cannot ultimately win against God. But while he has time, he will seek to destroy and deceive as many as he possibly can. He'll even use signs and wonders. Now, signs and wonders are used consistently throughout the scripture as a demonstration of credibility and an invitation to believe a demonstration of credibility, and an invitation to believe. Moses and Aaron did signs and wonders in order to demonstrate to the Israelites that God had sent them to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. Elijah performed signs and wonders in order to demonstrate to Israel that Yahweh was the one true God and that Baal was a false deity. The Lord Jesus Christ performed signs and wonders to testify to the fact that he was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, sent to deliver God's people from their sins. The apostles performed signs and wonders in the days of the early church, These were referred to in 2 Corinthians 12, 12 as the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. It is our belief, and we believe the scripture teaches, that with the end of the apostolic age, there was no longer any use of the signs of the apostles. But with the ending of the apostles came the end of the signs of the apostles. And those gifts have, at least for this present point in church history, have ceased. But it's been Satan's tactic from the beginning to mimic what god does to copy to counterfeit so that he can deceive and destroy and he seeks to deceive by destroying counterfeit power upon his minions so as to turn people away to their own damnation exodus 7 verse 22 but the magicians of egypt did the same by their secret arts and then it says in the hebrew so though that it's a natural consequence the magicians of egypt did the same by their secret arts so pharaoh's heart remained hardened And he would not listen to them. Satan did it in the time of the Exodus. He'll do it in the future. And he does it now. He does it now. Satan operates this way in in the present. He uses charlatans today, both in the States and around the world, to lead astray believers into accepting a false gospel. 2 Corinthians 11, 1-4 Paul says, verse two, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Satan's minions today include prosperity preachers, so-called faith healers, televangelists with their own private jets and compounds. But his minions also include regular, seemingly normal, run-of-the-mill pastors, Who are in the ministry for any other reason besides the glory of Christ, the proclamation of the gospel to the lost, and the edification of the church. If an individual goes into ministry for any other reason than that, they need to tremble. James warns such people in James 3. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Ezekiel 34, 1 through 10, we don't have time to look at it, but Ezekiel 34, 1 through 10, God condemns the false shepherds of the people of Israel in the days of the exile into Babylon. They were wicked shepherds who got involved in ministry in order to feed their own stomachs and satisfy their own lusts. And fast forward all the way to the time of the tribulation, this false prophet is cut from the same cloth as Satan has used in the past, as he uses in the present, he will use in the future charlatans, pointing people to a false Christ. The false prophets will point people to the Antichrist who experienced some type of miraculous resurrection or healing. Jesus warned us about this. Jesus told us in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, verses 23 through 28, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. We need to keep moving. Our sixth point of the ministry of the false prophet, he will use his demonic powers not only to deceive, but to persecute, to persecute those faithful to Christ. Verse 15, And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. This is reminiscent of Nebuchadnezzar's actions following his dream in Daniel 2. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar is given a dream from God that shows the successive reign of world empires. Nebuchadnezzar's empire was that of Babylon. It was at the top. It was the head of gold. Then there was the chest and arms of silver, the middle of bronze, the thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet of iron and clay. Successive world empires that would ultimately all be destroyed by a rock cut out without hands that Daniel 2 shows us is the kingdom of the Almighty. God's kingdom defeats all human empires. Nebuchadnezzar, sadly, does not respond in repentance or conversion at the end of Daniel chapter 2. What does he do in Daniel chapter 3? He employs his entire kingdom's resources to build that same statue, only it's all out of gold what is Nebuchadnezzar saying in Daniel chapter three? I saw the vision, I saw the dream, and I'm going to thwart it. It's gonna be my empire from now throughout all time. It's gonna be all Babylon. And we know what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. I believe that God in his mercy, as we see in Daniel chapter four, humbles Nebuchadnezzar, convinces Nebuchadnezzar that he had been a fool. He spent seven years acting like a dumb beast. And at the end, he truly praised God. I believe we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. But this man, the Antichrist, is wholly devoted to the ministry of Satan, and he seeks to build a statue, just like Nebuchadnezzar did in Daniel 3. The Antichrist builds a statue, an image. And the false prophet points everybody to the image and says, Worship this image, worship this image, worship this image, and in so doing, worship the Antichrist, and ultimately worship Satan. And those who refuse, those who refuse are destroyed. What's encouraging in this even as dark as it is and bleak as it is, is the truth that during the time of the tribulation, one of the most darkest periods of world history, there will still be a remnant of people who refuse to bow down and refuse to worship the Antichrist. They're not super people. They're not super Christians. They don't have a greater faith than you or I do. Why does any true Christian refuse to bow down? Because God is holding him or her fast. Because God is strong. Because God holds his own and keeps them from spiritual compromise. Many of you know that I used to be in a Bible study with Pastor Bart um, about 15 years ago in California. Uh, he was a seminary student. I was a college student. And I remember one of his sermons very clearly. I don't remember most of his sermons, but I do remember one of them very clearly from Daniel chapter 3. It had a huge impact on my heart. Bart was preaching from Daniel 3 on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to about 80 college students crammed inside a a house in the suburb of uh, Northridge in Los Angeles. The text said this in Daniel 3, 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I remember Bart saying this, this is about as clear a quote as I can recall. Bart said, What will happen when the world comes for you? What will happen when the world demands that you bow down to the cultural idols it has set up? Will you be standing tall with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Or will you be face, or will you be face down, sucking sand with the rest of the Babylonian captives? Where will you be? when you're called to give an account for your faithfulness to Christ? Why you don't go along with certain agendas? Why you don't affirm certain sinful choices? Will you be ready? Do you walk with Christ daily now, talking to him in prayer, hearing from him in his word? Are you ready to give an account for the hope that is within you as 1 Peter 3.15 calls you to do? Next, we see that the false prophet will compel the entire world to swear loyalty to the Antichrist. Verses 16 and 17. Also, it, the false prophet, causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand of the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. The false prophet will force every single person on the planet who is present on earth at that time to come to a personal crossroads in their life. Will they demonstrate loyalty to the Antichrist, the chief lieutenant of Satan, or will they choose martyrdom, suffering, and death? The phrase here is to be marked. Literally, they are given a mark. This word shows up in the scriptures only in the book of Revelation, but in extra-biblical literature, in in other ancient Greek literature, it is the word for the branding of a horse, a brand that you would put on a horse so that you would know this one belongs to me. This will be a visible mark, some type of tattoo or imprint of some kind, and it will either be a name or a number that refers to a name a name or a number that refers to a name. People would have a choice. They could have it the name, they could have the number, they could have it on their forehead, or they could have it on their hand, but they have to take it or face the consequences. Now, every time we see this mark discussed throughout the book of Revelation, beginning here in chapter 13, again in chapter 14, again in chapter 16, again in chapter 19, and again in chapter 20, it's mentioned five times throughout the book of Revelation, receiving the mark goes hand in hand With a heart of devotion and worship to the Antichrist. This is how we know that this mark is not something that has happened yet in the history of the world. There has been no visible imprint or marker or tattoo of any kind that goes hand in hand with devout loyalty to a demonically empowered, satanically possessed world ruler who has set up a statue and requires people to bow down to that statue. If the description doesn't fit, then we start applying this idea of a mark to things that have come at our own peril. We start playing fast and loose with the scripture. It needs to fit all of the characteristics. This is not something that has happened yet. Throughout the course of world history, some people have said that this mark uh, is is the name of Nero or uh, the name of one of the popes throughout church history. All of those attempts are unsatisfactory. The fact is, is that those living in the tribulation will have a very stark choice. Receive the mark or receive death. This is a choice that has faced many throughout church history. It will face saints of the tribulation, but it may even come to us before the tribulation. I do not believe that we will be in the tribulation. I do not believe that uh, those who are believers now will go through the hour of testing that is coming on the whole earth partly because of God's promise to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3.10, that those who are faithful to Christ will be spared from the hour of tribulation coming on the whole world. But we don't know how bad suffering and persecution will get in society before the Lord comes back for us. What does Jesus tell the church of Smyrna? Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. What do we do in response to this? Let's look at verse 18 as we close. The believer's response. Exercise biblical wisdom in the face of pernicious deception. Exercise biblical wisdom in the face of pernicious deception. The evil one's scheme is to deceive humanity. How do you fight back? Cling to the word. Verse 18 says, this calls for wisdom. And remember, friends, where does wisdom come from? From God alone. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. One thing we need to keep in mind is that we must stick to what God has revealed. We must stick to what God has revealed. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but that which is revealed is for us to observe and keep. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he instructs them to not go beyond what is written. What God has told us, and no more, is what should guide our thoughts. You must let God's wisdom influence your perception of the world, You must read your Bible more and more every day. As we said last week, is this the read your Bible more sermon? Yes, it is. You can never take in too much of God's word. This raises the question, and we have approximately two minutes to answer it. What is the mark and what is 666? Well, as we said before, it's a visible sign, a visible signal, perhaps a tattoo, perhaps some other imprint of some kind placed upon the right hand of the forehead. It is associated with worshipful allegiance and devotion to the Antichrist and ultimately to satanic worship. There's nothing like this that has happened yet in human history. Some have said, well, clearly it's Nero. Clearly this points to Nero, and, and this is actually be people who to hold to a post-millennial interpretation. Um, the, the thing about Nero is that if you, if you want it to be Nero, it actually requires you to use an unusual title for Nero, a misspelling of his name, and also the gematria, which is using numbers to reach words, um, The gematria that gets you Nero also gets you Titus Vespasian and Emperor Domitian. So we can rule out this being Nero. In fact, you need to be careful of gematria in general. It's the use of numbers to find secret codes or secret meanings. Twelve years ago, there was a man named Harold Camping, and he created national fervor and uproar because he predicted that Christ was going to come back on May 21st, 2011, and Christ didn't. And Harold Camping died a fraud in a charlatan two years later. But he employed gematria. Do not give in to the temptation to find secret codes or read in the white spaces. Stick to what God has revealed. Be a faithful steward of the 66 books that God has revealed. Now, we do need to look at what it says here. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. There's no mistakes in Scripture. We need to ask, where have we seen this number before? It does not show up too much, but it does show up in other instances. One of the most poignant instances that we see this number before is in 1 Kings ten fourteen. Solomon received tribute every year from Egypt, 666 gold talents every year. This was an enormous sum of money that Solomon took every year from Egypt. And you say, what's the big deal about that? Solomon knew, as every faithful king of Israel ought to have known, that it was sinful for the king to multiply women, to multiply horses and chariots, and to multiply gold. This was an act of prideful rebellion. To take 666 gold talents every year from Egypt as tribute was an act of prideful, arrogant rebellion against God. Then we see later, we see later, as Abner Chow points out in Daniel 3, when Nebuchadnezzar sets up his statue, what are the dimensions of the statue? 60 cubits tall by 6 cubits wide. Without going beyond what is written, it does appear that this number 6, especially in the form of 666, is connected to the idea of proud arrogance and rebellion against God. And what an interesting thing to study at this time of year. Because we live in a culture that celebrates pride. Pride is one of the worst sins a person can commit. Proverbs does not lie when it says pride goes before destruction. When the Antichrist sets up his statue and demands that people bow down to the statue and they take his name or the number of his name, 666, as a sign of loyalty and allegiance to the Antichrist and ultimately to Satan, it is one of the most perverted acts of God-defying pride that a person can do. Pride goes before a fall. How do you escape that? Humble yourself. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself now, today, before the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you. Humble yourself in repentance and faith, coming to the one who humbled himself, even though he didn't need to, he did it out of love. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, died for sinners, rose again for sinners, and now offers eternal life and forgiveness to any who confess their pride, And come to him now before it is too late. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our time in studying Revelation 13. I pray that it would be profitable to our hearts and that what we study on Sunday would affect us on Monday. That we would live in humility and obedience to you, confessing our sin, walking in integrity, glorifying you with our choices, our actions, and our words. May we be faithful to share your truth with a lost and dying world. And may you call those whom you've chosen into your kingdom.